Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kalt and sharp at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Yudi Gabriel with Jewish yeah. History Soundbites. In this episode, we're going to look at the Tsarist government um, and its Jewish legislation, or probably more correctly said, it's anti-Jewish legislation after 1881. In other words, the story of the Tsars and the Jews from 1881 till 1914. In the last episode, when we talked about Russian Jewry of the 19th century, where we launched this this uh, story, this narrative, we discussed from the partitions of Poland all the way up to 1881. So here we're just simply going to continue and discuss the story of the Jews in Russia under the Tsars, um, specifically Tsar Alexander III, and the final Tsar before the Russian Revolution, Tsar Nicholas II. And the topics I would like to cover in this uh, installment is the assassination of Alexander the Tsar Alexander II, um, which which kind of launched this time period. That's why we picked 1881, um, and um, and what that leads to, like a downturn in the fortunes of Russian Jewry. It's what's known as the Sufot Banegev, the storms in the south, the pogroms. In the south, it was so named because the Jewish um, newspapers, Hamelitz and all the other big Jewish newspapers in the Russian Empire, they were there was censorship and they weren't allowed to uh, speak too explicitly regarding the pogroms, and especially since many of the articles and editorials in the Jewish media at the time were laying blame to the government, which was. Not something that they, which was a risky venture, they can get in trouble for that. So they, instead of referring to the pogroms explicitly, they would write Sufot Banegev, the the storms in the south. Um, eventually, 
the government um, passes restrictive laws, a series of restrictive laws called the May Laws. We'll talk about that. The impact that has on the Jewish people in Russia. This leads to mass immigration um, to the United States and other countries from the Russian Empire. The Jews of Russia, like we've been continuously saying in last time, they are the largest, not just the largest community by far, but massive. They're like almost half of the Jewish people. There's nearly 6 million Jews living in the Russian Empire in the 1880s. There's the rise of Jewish nationalism. There's the radicalization of the Jewish street. And the question is, was 1881 really the turning point or a symbol? Um, it's, it's both a turning point and a symbol, meaning a lot of the processes which were taking place in Russian Jewry and were taking place in Russia itself as a country and were taking place as part of the legislative process of the Russian government were taking place over the 1870s and 1880s. It wasn't that there was this dramatic, sudden change in 1881, but we, as historians are, tend to do very often, we choose a specific time and date and year to zoom in on because um, it's an artificial way of cutting up history to help us understand things that post-1881 and pre-1881. So it's not as dramatic as, as, as we make it to be, that 1881 was the turning point, and there was one type of life before and another type of life after. Um, it's more gradual processes, but since the assassination of Tsar Alexander II and the pogroms broke out in 1881, so it's just easier for us if we point to that date. But obviously a lot of these things and processes are more gradual and uh, and not and not as dramatic or sudden as we um, as we make it to be. Now it's also important to understand that even Jews at the time looked at 1881 as a turning point. So it's not only us as historians, but even people living in real time did see it somewhat as as this like a turning point. But as we study the sources more, we understand that it's not as uh, dramatic or uh, or sudden as as we would assume it to be. So we're going to go through the reign of Alexander III, and of course the final czar, um, Nicholas II, and the Jews. Uh, during his time, there's the Kishinev pogrom, the infamous tragic pogrom, which I've covered in another episode. There's also the 1905 revolution, which causes a huge um, upheaval on the Russian street, and especially among the Jewish population. There's the radicalization of the Jewish population. I mean, many of them become revolutionaries. There's a new political system in the post-1905 revolution world in Russia, um, which the Jews have representation in the Russian Duma for the first time. So that's an interesting story. And the relaxing of censorship, which gives rise to new Jewish media, newspapers and stuff like that. And then we're going to close out with the Mendel Bayless trial, a ritual murder charge in Kiev, which rocked Jewish Russia and really the entire Jewish world well beyond Russia in 1913 on the eve of World War One, And of course, World War One leads to the end of of um, of the uh, the story of the czars and the Jews because in 1917 is the Rus both Russian revolutions. So we have um, <coughs> um, we spoke about last time Alexander II was the time of the great reforms and the reign of Alexander III is a time of reactionary policy. There's the assassination of Alexander II and 
here they're concerned about um, you know the Russian people are getting too much freedom and too much reform. We need to restore the autocratic policies um, and uh, and more conservative old school world order under Alexander the Third, and therefore there is this conflict between reform and reactionary policy in general. That's one of the main themes of the reign of Alexander the Third. The second main theme, which is related to the first, um, is that there's is in the Russian economy, and both of these stuff have are related to the Jews, so that's why I'm pointing them out. Um, there's a, in the economy, there's this attempt at rapid industrialization. Um, really, in the 1890s, a very fast, rapid industrialization in Russia, and how that conflicts with the conservatism of both the Russian political system as well as the Russian population in general, and uh, in in how that forced a change in the economy also is going to have consequences. So there's these conflicting messages from both the government and the populace uh, between the the uh, economic uh, 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 goals of the Russian government. You have to remember in the broader context of European politics, the Russian Empire is struggling to keep up with the, old, the other big imperialist uh, powers in Europe, such as England, the British Empire, the rise of Germany, of Prussia, with the Bismarck uniting Germany. This is just around that time, 1870, is when Bismarck unites Germany. So now Prussia and Germany are a world power. You have the Habsburgs, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which in 1868 becomes Austro-Hungary, um, when they reach the peak of their power as well. Um, you have uh, the Industrial Revolution taking place throughout Europe. France is a world power. The Ottoman Empire is is uh, t- is, uh, is also not a modernized empire, but there's still a force to be reckoned with, um, and therefore Russia is trying to keep up um, their military and their economy and their ind- industry and all that. So you have the old class system in Russia, wealthy landowners of the old school aristocracy, and they are trying to maintain their power. And then you have the newly freed serfs, which had been freed in 1861 by Tsar Alexander II in the Great Reforms. And they live on the countryside. They're primarily farmers. They engage in agriculture. And and there's this, and what, what what's going to happen with all of them? They're free now, and they're you know, the, in a changing world and in, in a world that's becoming more industrialized. So there's this new urban merchant class, um, shopkeepers, a middle class, which were historically primarily Jews, although there were always others. And, and with this rise of industry in the cities, it's also the rise of capitalism. So there's a new wealthy class, both a middle class who engage in banking and merchant as merchants, as importers, as uh, the stock market. All these things are very new and modern in Russia. And there's also, because of the rise of industry and factories in the big cities, there's a new working class. Now, the this new rise of capitalism uh, and rise of industry is seen as by the Russian government and by the Russian conservative uh, elements in society they're seen as dominated by Jewish industries, banking, entrepreneurship of new of new companies and new industries, uh, finance, the railroad industry, capital investment. All these things are looked at as Jewish industries, and um, 
And now there's two rising threats to the old order. Um, and both of them come to be associated with Jews. And that's this is all to, to explain the reactionary policy of Tsar Alexander III's government. And there's two new threats. The question is, what's more of a threat? Is it the growing urban working class, uh, factory workers who are seen as potential revolutionaries? That's one class, economic class, that's very new in the Russian in Russian society. Or a growing wealthy and middle class, which is represented by capitalism. Um, and both are viewed, like I said, as Jewish new threats to the old order. The perceived threat of an emerging third class of bourgeois. In other words, in Russian society, it was always the aristocracy and the serfs, with the urban merchant class being a very small, insignificant uh, entity. Now that uh, um, this this uh, this middle class of you know capitalism will cause chaos to the old order because capital money will flow from the ruling landowner class, where it historically had been, to the new moneyed class. In other words, the, the new economic class where their money, where their, is not, it's not based in real estate, it's not based in owning land and farmland and, and, and like the aristocracy had historically been, but more finance, the stock market. In other words, the Jews. And the Jews, because they are the finance and money class, they're the new emerging middle class in the cities, they will control the country. Through this industrialization, they're going to control the new working class. It had always been the aristocracy landowners who controlled the serfs. Now that everyone's moving to the cities and they're becoming workers in factories, the ones who control the money and control the flow of capital and investment and entrepreneurs, they're all Jews. So the Jews are going to control the country. That was the threat. That was the perceived threat as far as the Tsar and his government were concerned. This rigid view of the emerging industrialized version of Russia served three purposes during the reign of Alexander III. Number one, this class system, this way they viewed the new emerging class system served the members of the old uh, aristocracy to preserve the old system. It's a crumbling world in front of their eyes. They're trying to desperately hold on to their power. So they, they, this, this way of viewing, viewing the world and blaming the Jews for, for upending the entire system is a very convenient way of trying to preserve the old system. Number two, it was an easy mechanism of inciting the masses against Jewish exploitation. He, they're, they're exploiting the new working class. They're, they're the ones making money off of the real, quote-unquote, real Russians. Um, and number three, it would be a justification to slow down the development of a capitalist system in the economy by passing new anti-Jewish legislative restrictions. So these, they have a reason to do it. In this way, it would help preserve the old order. So this is this is very important to understand the broader uh, uh, trends in Russian society at this point and how that relates to the Jewish or anti-Jewish policy rather. Now, what's ironic is that these very same Jewish stereoty stereotypical tropes were utilized during the previous Tsar, during the the great reforms of Alexander II, the predecessor of Alexander III. Just then they were used in a positive way. And during the time of Alexander II, senior government officials in the Tsarist government were pushing for reform, wanted to grant emancipation to the Jews of Russia at that time, in the 1860s, uh, 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 because it would lead to the growth of industry, 
and be beneficial for the development of a strong capitalist economy. So it's very ironic that they use this exact same stereotype to promote Jewish emancipation during the time of reform, and here they're using it to, to pass uh, restrictive legislation during the time of the reactionary policy of the next Tsar. And if we would contrast the broader Tsarist governmental policy of Tsar Alexander II and Tsar Alexander III, as far as the Jewish question is concerned, obviously, that's what we're interested in this podcast. So we'd find that the former, meaning Alexander II, implemented policies to incentivize the Jewish individual as an individual to integrate and to earn his privileges for selective integration, which we discussed last episode, through education, through economic incentives. An individual earned those privileges which was never full emancipation, but the idea in theory was that it would eventually lead to full emancipation, though it never did, even for those selective integration people who earned their privileges. That was the the idea under Alexander II. Under Alexander III, he forms this defensive policy against the Jews, which put barriers in place against selective integration. So it's really a stark contrast. And the reason for this change under Tsar Alexander III was that it was understood um, by the Tsar and his ministers and the government that despite a century of attempts at solving the Jewish question, nothing had really worked. And there was this despondent feeling among the Tsarist officials. The Jewish population was larger than ever, still primarily traditional and even religious, not really integrated into Russian society, still in the old economic occupations that they had always held, still with the structures of the Kahal and other autonomous institutions, despite the Russian government's attempts at at, uh, breaking those up and integrating them. And there is this growing frustration that the government had with themselves at their own failure to solve what they had classified as the Jewish question to their satisfaction. And therefore they grew pessimistic regarding the future of Jews in Russia. And this frustration was, and and giving up essentially, they had give, given up, they, they were like throwing up their hands in the air, it was directly connected to the broader failure of the Russian Empire to modernize and industrialize at the same pace as its rival European powers. So they saw themselves as falling behind the other empires of Europe. They saw themselves as having failed to solve the Jewish question, and these two combined to lead the imperial government to create conspiracy theories, it's always the easy way out, to explain why the Jews weren't integrating and to explain away their own failures. So what's the conspiracy theories? These are rather famous. They say that the Jewish kahal in Russia that they were not able to obliterate was really a branch of worldwide Jewry, especially of the French Alliance, uh, Kiach, Kol Yisrael Chaverim, the French Alliance, uh, uh, Israelite Universal, was this French Jewish organization which... Um, which saw the Jews as one entity throughout the world and the Jews need to help each other as a secular Jewish organization. So they said, oh, the Russian Kahal is connected to the French Alliance, which is a worldwide Jewish conspiracy, and that obviously leads to the very, very famous or infamous forgery of Russian Tsarist officials, which is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was the idea, the idea of which was that the world Jewry is, 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 seeks out world domination, the Rothschild banking family throughout Europe, 
which is also the major French branch, it's related to the Elians, and 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 it's through Jewish rabbis and Talmudists and political leaders and bankers that they're trying to take over the world and exploit European society, and they do this secretly and they meet secretly, and these this forgery of the protocols of the elders of Zion is supposedly of these meetings, and that was a a czarist. Russian forgery during the late 1800s, and it was during this exact time that it was promulgated. Um, the rightist Russian media incited anti-Jewish hatred, blaming them for the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881, and blaming Jews for being revolutionaries against the Tsar's government, and this led to the infamous pogroms of 1881 through 1884, three, four years of pogroms, the Sufot Banegev the storms of the south, which I mentioned before, primarily in Ukraine, but they spread around quite a bit across the empire. It started out in in a city in Ukraine. It was then called Elizabeth Grad, uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth City. Elizabeth was one of the early uh, Tsarinas of Russia in the 18th century. Today it's Kropivnytsky, uh, Ukraine, um, as a different name. Um, and there was, you know, these pogroms spread pretty easily because you have to understand it wasn't just the Tsarist government. There was still a widespread belief among the common masses of the Russian masses across the countryside in, in, from the Russian Orthodox Church. They anti old medieval, middle age anti Semitic beliefs, ritual murder charges against the Jews, and the Russian Orthodox Church plays a large role in inflaming the masses in this regard. So what was exactly the role of the central government in St. Petersburg in instigating these pogroms, these very, very infamous pogroms of 1881 to 1884? Did they manage them? Did they curtail them? Did they prosecute the perpetrators? What about local governments, police forces, the Russian military? There's a lot of questions. Now today, it's pretty clear that the central government, the central czarist government in St. Petersburg was not directly involved in instigating or managing the programs themselves. They definitely didn't do much to stop it. Uh, it took very, very often a long time for the police to intervene. There also was not great prosecution of the, of the perpetrators. Um, so, uh, the the, the 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 role was has, has been questioned by historians. What role? What direct role was it? Indirect roles? Was it just bystander roles that they did not intervene? Um, they didn't enforce the law. It happens to be that the way the autocratic czar's government worked was that they were very often disturbed by chaos and havoc. An autocratic government is always nervous about disturbances in the public order and safety. So therefore, they did not want these pogroms. They definitely did not instigate them. They wanted things to be orderly. They did not like when things get out of hand and unlawful. The Tsar was actually happy. Tsar Alexander III was happy that the Jews were getting what he saw as being as the Jews getting punished, uh, justifiably so, for exploiting the populace. And in theory, he agreed with the popular uprising against them, but he wanted also public order restored. He actually, this is documented, he was actually upset that he had to kind of defend the Jews by deploying the police to stop the pogroms eventually. But he did, because he wanted to restore public order. So it's important to note 
that uh, is that the 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 contemporary historians today discovered by examining Tsarist era archives that the Tsarist central government was not responsible for instigating the pogroms. Um, um, but that's that's something that we know today. What was widely believed at the time, and this is important because we want to understand the story of Russian Jewry, and this was believed at the time across wide swaths of the Jewish population was that the Tsarist government themselves had orchestrated the pogroms. So even if we know that that's not, it's a little more nuanced version today, but the Jews at the time did believe that to be the case. Um, and that was the view of the young historian Shimon Dubnov, who lived through it at the time. That was the view of the popular editor of Hamelitz, Alexander Tsiderboin, and many other uh, newspapers who reported on it. That was also the view of the Orthodox uh, activist Yaakov Lifshitz, the secretary of Yitzchakhan inspector, all these people write about it at the time. So in real time, many of the Jews in Russia, many of the masses across the Pale of Settlement, uh, did believe that. So why is that important? If we know that it's not the case today, so why it is important that they believed that incorrectly so at the time? The reason is that it's important is because they reacted according to their perception, and Jews in Russia reacted according to their understanding, and in many ways, this was a wake-up call and a watershed moment in a turning point in Russian Jewish history, which we'll return to and elaborate upon in future episodes when we talk about the development of Jewish politics in Russia as a reaction to the pogroms and to their understanding that it was the Russian government who was going against them, the rise of Jewish nationalism and eventually Zionism that happens as a result, um, and other versions of nationalism, the the radicalization of Jews, the fact that they be, many of them do become revolutionaries and even communists, and the main story, immigration. Why so many Jews start moving and leaving Russia for good. Um, they can't handle it under the czars anymore. So this perception of understanding because of the pogroms and their uh, the, the resulting May laws, which we'll discuss in a second, had a very, very decisive impact on Russian Jewry. Now this episode in particular is focusing primarily on the czars and his government and their Jewish policy. We're going to delve deeper into the Jewish responses and the trends within Russian Jewry and their lives under Russian rule. We'll explore that in future episodes. The, the next immediate result of these pogroms and the reign of Alexander III is the passing of the May Laws in 1882. 1882. Um, they're kind of, the, the May Laws are kind of like the government's reaction to the pogroms. The May Laws essentially blamed the Jews themselves, who were the victims. They blamed them for provoking their pogroms by their provocative economic behavior. So the victim is blamed for instigating the pogroms. And the May Laws were further restrictions um, on, on where Jews were allowed to reside, even within the Pale. They weren't allowed to live in, 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 uh, in rural areas within the Pale. Um, the May Laws passed, part of the May Laws were, were uh, restrictions on where the Jews were allowed to purchase real estate, quotas on Jewish representation on city councils in the Pale of Settlement, limiting Jews in Russian universities, which is the first numerous clauses, limiting the licensing of new Jewish lawyers, further restrictions on Jewish economic life. The May Laws, even though they start off in May 1882, they, that's why they're called the May Laws, but this is a legislative process that takes place over a decade, from 1882 to 1892, and they keep on imposing further restrictions. Um, 
continues over the 1880s, getting worse and worse, more reactionary, sometimes even bypassing the regular legislative process within the Tsarist government, so that the internal ministry, the Misrata Pnim, or, the, or even local governments, could circumvent attempts at reform by imposing further restrictions on Russian Jewry. And of course, the Russian Orthodox Church and other conservative and anti-Semitic elements were heavily involved in this process, which was essentially, like I said, before a desperate attempt at saving the old order from the forces of modernity, revolution, capitalism, the rise of Russian liberalism, um, there was the, the old order wanted to save against all these save save Russia against all these new trends, industrialization. The Jewish question essentially falls right in the middle of all this social upheaval throughout the Russian Empire. Right, one of the the uh, uh, cause celebres, so to speak, of of the Russian liberal movement was was against the Russian policy against the Jews, right? So they, the, the Jewish question falls in the middle of, of the Russian social upheaval. The culmination of this process of restrictions was the great expulsions, one of the only expulsions in the modern modern-day Jewish history. We know expulsions took place in the Middle Ages, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and supper, unfortunately, for Jews throughout primarily Western and Central Europe, and Spain, and France, and England, and Germany, many times, many places. Um, in the modern era, expulsions were rare. And one of the last great expulsions in Jewish history was at this time in Russia, from areas outside the pale of settlement, where Jews had been living legally due to the process of selective integration under the reforms of Alexander II, and now many of them are expelled from those areas back to the Pale of Settlement, such as from St. Petersburg, Kiev, Kharkov, and even inside the Pale of Settlement from rural areas and villages to towns and cities, especially near the western border of the Russian Empire, ostensibly because the Russian government saw the Jews as a security threat too, not just an economic threat. Uh, the most dramatic and tragic of these expulsions at this time was the infamous explosion, uh, expulsion excuse me, of close to 30,000 Jews from Moscow and its environs in 1892. This was a very in famous expulsion and talked about uh, it was like a traumatic event, not only for the expellees themselves, but for all of Russian Jewry, because it was like this devastating blow to Russian Jewry as a whole, that the idea of selective integration is dead. And all these Jews who had lived in Moscow uh, for decades, uh, 30,000, a huge number also, were now expelled and forced to go back into the Pale of Settlement. Um, the late 1890s and early 1900s really saw a fascinating story play out in Russian politics with the Jewish question right in the middle of it. The Interior Ministry... Misrata Pnim, we call it in Israel, held a, a, a hard line. Uh, they held the conservative position, which was backed by the aristocracy and the Russian Orthodox Church, to preserve the old order. And they were against economic reform. They were largely anti-Semitic. They promoted further restrictions. That was one side of Russian politics. The liberal side was led by the Treasury, the finance ministry, they led the charge for economic reform. They led the charge for rapid industrialization. And they led the charge for loosening restrictions on all minorities, and especially regarding the Jewish question, 
I say all minorities because there are many minorities in Russia, and there is discrimination against others as well because this is a rise of Russian nationalism, ethnic, ethnic Russians. In fact, one of the restrictions uh, of this time um, during the 1880s as an extension of the May laws was uh, against the legal profession that that ethnic Russians should be promoted to becoming lawyers and not minorities. So actually Jews and Muslims. There are many Muslims living in the Russian Empire because of areas in southern uh, uh, southern Russian Empire that had been conquered from the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century, so 18th and 19th centuries. So there's all these Muslims uh, um, today is like all the Stans, uh, Kazakhstan, all those areas were part of the Russian Empire, so they, they didn't want uh, Muslims and Jews to become lawyers. Just an example of other minorities as well. Either way, so the Treasury, the Finance Ministry, wanted to loosen restrictions on the minorities, and especially regarding the Jewish question, because the, the Finance Ministry felt that their participation would be beneficial for the economy. So there's this Conflict between two ministries, and since Russia is an autocracy, so there's no prime minister, there's no parliament yet, this is before the 1905 revolution, so the, there's only the czar. And under the, the long tenure of the finance minister at the time, Sergei Vita, who was one of the most famous Russian politicians of the late 19th, early 20th centuries, Sergei Vita is not a liberal, he's conservative, because... You know, if you're liberal, you're not even in the government altogether. But relative to other ministers in the government, he was considered someone who pushed for reform. So these two ministries duked it out to not much success in either direction because Tsar Alexander III and his successor, Nicholas II, um, who succeeded him, I think, in 1894, if I'm not mistaken, um, were these two czars were autocratic. They were suspicious of anything new. They were slow to act and take any initiative. They were at times indecisive, very conservative, and overall quite anti-Semitic. So there was no effective leadership from the czars. So the two ministries are vying for power against each other, with the czar not really um, uh, uh, making uh, any major leadership decisions to advance uh, either the interior ministry's position or the finance ministry's position. So there's almost like this crisis in Russian politics. The Jewish question is right in the middle of this crisis. And this crisis is one of the catalysts which lead to the 1905 revolution, which is an essentially an explosion in Russia. Um, of course, that wasn't the only catalyst. There's also the failures of the Russo-Japanese war and a host of other internal exter and external factors. I'm not going to analyze the 1905 revolution so but i just wanted to mention that the interior ministry on the which was on the other side the interior minister's name was Vyacheslav van pleve 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 sorry in his capacity among the many things during his tenure which were detrimental to the jews and jewish interests in russia he was most associated with the accusation that his incitement and his ministry's incitement led to the tragic Kishinev pogrom in April 1903, which I covered in its own episode a few years back. You might want to check that one out, the story of the Kishinev pogrom and the result of the Kishinev pogrom um, uh, among Russian Jewry. Um, so it's unclear if that accusation is true or not. If it did uh, Pleva uh, actually instigate the Kishinev pogrom, we don't know. But what is definitely certain, what we do know, is that he did nothing to stop it, both in the lead up to it, which was quite some time that it was there was inflaming of the masses and 
during during the program itself, he did nothing to stop it. And in the aftermath, um, and there was even tacit support from his ministry and the justice ministry to the ritual murder charges in the Kishinev story. So the interior ministry has this very, uh, very large impact on the terrible uh, effects of the Kishinev program, uh, whether they directly instigated it or not. Uh, some of the anti-Jewish legislation was mitigated following uh, Pleva's uh, assassination in 1904, but it was very limited, and the Tsar himself was against any change that would benefit the Jewish population. So things came to a head in Russia in general, like I said, because of the uh, the crisis in Russian politics and the Russo-Japanese War and a host of other factors, and the revolution finally broke out in 1905. These were bloody days in Russia, and especially bloody pogroms against the Jews. Following, followed in the mayhem of the revolution and its aftermath between the years 1905 and 1907. So it was a very, very bloody time for the Jews. Um, and then after 1907, it was followed by the years of reactionary policy to crush the revolution until the fall of the Tsar in the uh, 1917 uh, revolution. But the, but the 1905 revolution did force, uh, force upon the Tsar's government limited reforms, especially in the, the Duma, uh, finally, the Russia had a parliament uh, which had representation of the people with elections, which was supposed to be now part of the legislative process, and the Tsar could not just rule on his own whim. So this, did that actually happen or not? We'll see. We'll touch upon it a little bit, because that's really more of a story of, of uh, the history of Russia. But what's, when it, the way it's related to Jews, we'll touch on uh, now. Now, what's amazing is that the Jews got voting rights to the Duma and representation. So this was a major reform, as far as the Jews were concerned, um, that was an accomplishment of the 1905 revolution. So the failed revolution of 1905 actually brought a lot, uh, brought a significant uh, change and benefit to Russians in general and to the Jews in particular. Um, there was even a discussion for a short period of time of full emancipation for the Jews of Russia from the 1905 revolution before it was crushed. Um, there was even a discussion of ending the Pale of Settlement. The first and second Dumas, um, which were liberal Dumas, um, they had a lot of representation by the liberal elements of Russian society, and Jews, uh, several Jews got voted into the first and second Dumas, but the first and second Dumas were quickly dissolved by the Tsar for being too liberal. Uh, when the Tsar finally was able to restore order in June 1907, he and his government implemented a reactionary policy which attempted to curtail all reforms achieved during the 1905 revolution and to limit the power of the Duma of this parliament, um, extremely limited, um, and especially regarding the Jews. So the, 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 the 1907 uh, is like this dark period again uh, for Russian Jewry. Although censorship was relaxed after the 1905 revolution, so it became easier for everyone in Russia, but focus on the Jews, it was easier for them to publish newspapers, books, sfarim. Um, it was also became easier to establish Jewish organizations. So there was a flourishing of Jewish organizations of all kinds, not political ones, um, because that was that that was much more difficult. But because um, they were seen as revolutionary, but all kinds of other organizations, self help and 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 history and and religious and all kinds of things like that. 
And it became much easier to hold meetings without getting prior approval from the government. It's another fascinating thing is that uh, Jews in Russia, before the 1905 revolution, it was illegal to hold a meeting uh, of more than 10 people unless you got permission from the police and the government. So it became easier to hold meetings after, excuse me, the 1905 revolution. Um, but as a, and, and as a result of uh, Sergei uh, Sergei Vitte, who's now n not just the finance minister, he's also the prime minister. So he uh, has this October manifesto, which was supposed to liberalize the Russian political system um, in 1905 as a result of the revolution. He wanted to try to stabilize the country, which was rocked by the revolutionary activity. Uh, so as a result of it, as a protest against these potential reforms, a string of bloody pogroms broke out against the Jews uh, across Russia, especially by a vicious uh, group called the Black Hundreds. A lot of bloodshed, a lot of Jews were killed during this time. Now, the last years prior to the onset of World War I, this is the last years of the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, they're a dark time for Russian Jewry. It seemed to get worse and worse. Um, there are these, on one hand, liberal and revolutionary movements expanding in Russia. And the response from the Tsar's government to this was an ever-increasing reactionary policy. This included draconian and worsening measures against the Jews. In other words, reforms and freedom seemed to be getting further away, not closer. It brought Russian Jewry to the brink of despair. And, it's in, and, and that leads, of course, to you know, more immigration, emigration from Russia, and more revolutionary activity in the Jewish street, and, and more despair, um, poverty. And, and it's in this context that the mendel Bayless trial takes place in 1913. This is the last hurrah of the old Russia before World War I and eventually the Russian Revolution, the fall of the Tsar. And Mendel Bayless is this innocent uh, um, factory foreman in Kiev, and he's falsely framed and accused, falsely accused of a ritual murder charge, a blood libel, that there's this, you know, Christian children, almost like the, just like the Middle Ages. And, um, and the Russian liberal movement takes up the Mendel Bayless trial as to show uh, both the Russian masses and the entire world to showcase it as the autocratic czar's government is hopelessly stuck in the old water. They're hopelessly uh, dictatorship is 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 you know make these ridiculous Middle Ages charges. And in fact, um, um, some of uh, Bayless's prominent lawyers were, were working pro bono as as the as uh, you know just to go against the czar's government. This became a big showcase trial and. Um, the result of the trial, Mendel Bayless is acquitted, um, and, is, and the Mendel Bayless trial happens to be something uh, we should discuss in its own episode. It's, it's worth its own episode. I just wanted to mention it as a crucial story within the broader context of the Tsar's government and the Jews in the last years of the Russian Empire prior to the outbreak of World War I. The trial gets a lot of media coverage, both in the Russian general media, the Jewish Newspapers in Russia kind of unified Russian Jewry, which was fractured to to many different factions, which we'll discuss and explore in further episodes uh, when we uh, we talk about Russian Jewry in the nineteenth century. Um, but um, 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 it unified a Russian Jewry around this cause. It even became an international media story, the Mendel Bayless trial. But but the important thing is is that the Tsarist government, who were the prosecution. 
they won from the judges that the ritual murder charge itself was not thrown out of court. It was that Mendel Bayless did not perpetrate the murder, and he is innocent. But the ritual murder charge was kept, was said, it was said to be a true thing. Jews do do that. It could be that in this specific instance, they were successful at proving their innocence. So the the czar the the czarist government was able to keep uh, that 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 alive. So that is the and then a year later, uh, less than a year later, World War One breaks out and and eventually that leads to the Russian Revolution, 1917, which is the fall of the czar. Czar Nicholas II abdicates and he and his family get. Uh, executed uh, following the Bolshevik Revolution. So that is the end of the Russian czars against uh, the, and the Jews. So that is, that is the story. Um, in, in future uh, parts of this series, um, we'll talk about how the Jews lived under the czars, how they lived in Russia, their religious life, their political life, their, their, you know, everything about them. There's so many exciting stories to go through. But now we were able to finish as far as the government was concerned um, and how they uh, implemented their policies um, uh, as far as the Jews in the Russian Empire were in the long 19th century. Um, um, and that, that ends here. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can, you can and should subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. Please tell your friends and family about the podcast. Spread the word. Leave a rating and a nice review uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. And I hope you enjoyed.